You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Cyber CEOs Decoded, where we speak with CEOs from established security giants to up and coming disruptors, getting the inside track on what makes a cybersecurity company tick. I'm your host, Mark Fonzadeloff, the CEO of Devo. And today I am super stoked that my guest is Christopher Alberg, well known entrepreneur in the cybersecurity community and co founder and CEO of Recorder Future. Christopher, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. So, this is going to be fun, I think. I think so, too. Um, we already had some chat before we hit the record button, and uh, we, we may get back to some of that, those interesting nuggets we started there. Um, first of all, uh, Christopher, you're from Sweden, and I was thinking, you know, I'm from the Netherlands. I'm a little bit more Americanized than you are, but I I really can't think of a good rivalry between our two birth countries uh, of note. I have a Swedish neighbor here who once played ABBA music in my living room until like uh, three in the morning. But besides that, I have no grievances between our countries. Can you think of any? I grew up in this city called Gothenburg or Göteborg, and it was a bunch of Dutch guys who showed up there and helped build the town, from what I understand. And you know, oh, like, wow. so you know, we put you to work, and and I think <laughs> it made it made it work in a really good way. Not just in work, but actually engineering the town, drawing the town. So I grew up uh, surrounded by Dutch uh, engineering. <laughs> I think. Well, you might have put us to work, but if we were anything like normal Dutch people, we probably charged you for it as well. I'm sure you did. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about growing up in, in you know, your family, your life there in Sweden. I mean, we all have uh, images of Sweden as this just beautiful country. I've been to Stockholm myself, but what was your actual life like there? Was it just, was it a normal growing up and what is that? I don't know. I grew up in a tiny little town, literally called Outer Village. That that's small. Is that older uh, village? Does that mean older village? Outer, outer village. <laughs> that's like in the boonies village, basically. Oh, I see. Outer. Yeah, I yeah, gotcha. The in a tiny village uh, or town, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, went to high school there. Ended up uh, being in the military for a bit. Uh, went very far north. Uh, that was a good experience. Uh, that's maybe what Sweden would look like. What everybody perceives it look at, like you know, with like tons of snow and midnight sun and and then a whole long time of darkness then ended up going to uh, engineering school studied computer science started loving that stumbled into this area of data visualization and data analysis and then been stuck in that rut for the quarter century after that so yeah now you really are in a in a rut i think uh, i think that's a very humble way of saying it a phd in computer science even sure yeah yeah that's true that's good. That's amazing. Good stuff. Uh, it's, yeah. And and what what was the first time anybody ever paid you to do something? What was a kind of meaningful first paid job growing up? You know, it's funny because most entrepreneurs obviously have sort of great. They started with a paper route when they were seven or so. I never really had a job of any sort. Uh, me and a buddy in high school, we built a drawing program, some sort of low end CAD thing that we sold in. Uh, basically uh, classified ads in the newspaper. It was not a very profitable enterprise. <laughs> the the R and D cost vastly overrated, overshadowed any uh, revenue line. But you know that was a good experience. I didn't really have a job. I think until in college when I programmed for a living a little bit. I I did this up this and that, but not nothing to write home about for sure. 
Well, uh, we were joking earlier that uh, when it comes to your career, uh, you have just a surprisingly few number of jobs to talk through. But uh, maybe let's start with with those jobs and, and why so few. First of all, I am sort of known for preferring non-job hoppers that I work with, you know. So, but so then maybe I've taken that to an extreme. Uh, after having done my PhD, I started this one company, Spotfires. I'd never really, you know, that that just stumbled into that and ended up being the CEO. And we built that to a decent size. And then we sold that to this company in, on the West Coast called Tipco and stuck around there for a year and a half and, and then started Recorded Future. So I guess I like to say that I'm on job 1.5. So <laughs> not, really, not really two yet, but 1.5. And you like that. You like being there for, at these jobs for a while. What do you like about that? I don't think about it as a job. It's like, this is what I do. I, I think of it as a huge privilege that I get to walk into the building here and chase bad guys for a living. We get to build sort of a private intelligence agency at a scale that's getting to be pretty decent. And we get paid to do it even. I probably would do it for free is the worst part. I don't even think about it as a job, and which probably is not a healthy thing, and it's probably a bad thing. And, you know, you could imagine all these Swedes who, in Sweden, you're supposed to hate your job. That's sort of deep in the soul of the country. Everybody's <laughs> supposed to hate their job. And, really? <laughs> no, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Yeah, but, I know. Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, no, I just love it. Yeah, that's awesome. Tell us about Recorded Future, because I, I've known you for quite a while, and um, I've seen you build just a remarkable uh, company that really plays a, an amazingly important role in the cybersecurity space. But I'd like you to bring us back to how did you get the idea to found the company? Was there already a threat intel space when you started the company or or, or not? No, I don't think so. It came sort of out of this background, having worked with data analysis a lot. My prior company, we worked with analyzing companies data. So if you think about when you were at IBM, Cognos, IBM bought Cognos, these sort of things, that, tools that business and business objects, we built this company called Spotfire. Now you hear about Palantir and Tableau. And so we worked with analyzing other people's data. That was great. Um, but then it struck me in, as we were selling Spotfire, that the internet is quickly becoming this, in a weird way, the largest data set in the world, in itself. And so it struck me that and, and there were tidbits in that that was extra interesting. The thing that the reason we were called Recorded Future was this idea that actually, if you start looking at everything that gets written on the internet, there are a lot of tidbits about the future there. What about if you could organize all those tidbits about the future? So that was sort of the idea. And that struck me, that idea in 2007. I wrote down that patent uh, and, and got that filed, sort of put that away and didn't do anything with it for two years. And, and it's sort of dawning on us, me and my co-founders, who had also co-founded the last company. So not only yeah. have I done it for a long time, I've done it with the same people for a sad long time. So it struck us that we could actually use this to build a great data set and then build great analytical tools on top of it. So basically live bolt analytics straight to the internet. So more with the idea of doing intelligence, but not what we think about as cyber threat intel or threat intel. But then over time here, I remember actually being in a weird facility in, in Columbia, Maryland, uh, with this guy who's a longtime friend. And, and he says, look, there are all these people who have sort of want to enrich SIGINT. That was the way he called it. But essentially was basically add context to cyber data. Could be more, but, but enrich SIGINT became this sort of enrich 
open source intel, enriched data from cyber. And then we didn't really listen to him for three years or something. But then 2012 or something sort of started running into people from JP Morgan. And I remember it was like a bunch of these early guys that we started working with. And it turned out that we were onto something. And and you're right, there was a tiny bit of a market, but that was okay. And we got in there and started building into that segment. And it was great. Yeah, amazing. And so what did you have people do to gather intel if you can if you can comment right like how did you gather this intel was it was it bots was it people was it so that was the breakthrough that was the breakthrough that the beauty of intel is of course that you and i could either sit down and we could start a company tomorrow and start writing uh, reports and start selling them by monday we could be on the street and start selling reports on monday now if it's you and me and not to diminish ourselves we're probably not many People would line up. Not a big market for that. Yeah. yeah, but we could go back to the bus stop in Columbia, Maryland, and put up some ads for you know some people, and we'd probably by two weeks could start selling some reports. And that's obviously how the thread intel industry largely have happened. That you you hire a bunch of people and you have them start writing reports, and you know, and that becomes your your product. Or you collect these sort of very basic IOC feeds off a firewall or sort of whatever you get it from. But we realized that. We actually wanted to build a collection machinery that could take originally what was written on the internet, and then we can expand more on it, but but drilling every year further and further and further into the core of the internet and turning that via analytics, these days saying machine learning and AI, but, but essentially analytics, and turn that into threat data that could be used around cybersecurity, around for warfare and around disinformation. And in this sort of convergence between cyber and warfare and disinformation, we've been able to build something that is largely automated. And then we have a layer of people on top of that. Uh, but but it's in that automation that we've been, been able to build a very good business model out of this that is very strong gross margins and just scales in a whole different thing from anything else that anybody has done. I mean, you guys are, built a, a substantial company. I don't know if you can comment on number of employees that you have or anything. No, it's okay. We're, we're, try, we're less secret. We used to be stupid secret before. Now, we're like north of 900 people and uh, just about a quarter of a billion in ARR and uh, call it, you know, we'll just call it cash flow positive, a little bit more than cash flow positive. We'll generate, you know, some decent amount of cash and 90% coming towards 90% gross margins. So it was a good business. I'll just admit, I got to know you when I was at IBM and I remember just assessing in my own little mind. And you know, to my credit, we were doing a lot of assessing of companies and buying of companies, but I just never would have thought that a company in your space would be able to get so big. I'm really amazed, but also I'm happy that you- yeah, No, no, thank you. I'm very pleased that to this day, people keep saying that Thread Intel is a feature. Right. Every time I look at them and say- Please, God, keep that belief, sir. <laughs> That's my mindset around it. I had an amazing chat with a customer the other day, and I want to run a metaphor by you. And I don't know if the metaphor works for you or for me. It makes either of us look good. But I had a customer who was giving me a hard time on acquiring Devo because she said, you know, we were hoping you guys had more of your own threat intel. And I said, well, what do you mean? I said, we integrate with, for example, Recorded Future, and they're amazing at that. I said, asking your SIM to do all your threat intel would be like asking Comcast to produce blockbuster movies for you. 
Like Comcast is good now in this metaphor. Unfortunately, I, I'm becoming the cable guy. I don't know why I did that to myself, but why would you know the cable guy make great movies? In fact, Comcast acquired Time Warner, and I believe that didn't really work out so well, right? So I said, we integrate with with Recorded Future, and we do what we do amazingly. We do have a threat research team, a small one that does some specific things that I think only we can do with our data, but. We integrate with a quarter feature, for example, and and that, that pairing is what you should think of. Do you think that that's the right way to think about it? I totally think that's the right way to think about it. Um, now, I also think that we will see a period now where a series of companies, sort of whether it's CrowdStrike or Palo Alto or Rapid7 and, you know, to some degree, Google and Microsoft are going to make an argument for integrated security stacks and they'll make Intel be part of that. I would miss, and I'm not the first one to sort of make this point here that over time it's turned out that in security there's too much change, too much you know, things that whether it's the bad guys cooking up uh, new stuff or the sort of the IT world cooking up new stuff that you actually need best of breed rather than these integrated stacks. But, you know, we've always prided ourselves, whether it's at this company or the prior over the last quarter of a century here to sort of be very good at one thing. And then yeah. just sell at that. And, you know, look, there's other people who are going to say, no, that's not the right way. Let's be a little bit good at a million different things and hope for the best as we bundle it together. And I don't know, you know, like yeah. I, I only know how to do the former and that's what I try to do. And, and that's what we try to do. And I think it's pretty good. I think software engineering and threat intel excellence spin. They're like records that spin at different speed, like an LP and an EP. And I think it's Hard to be, you know, be a disc jockey on those two uh, records at the same time. No, and be very disciplined about it. Like I'm, I always talk, babble, sort of talk about Bloomberg, and you know, you're in the financial financial world, and Bloomberg has built an exceptional business of providing the best intelligence to financial professionals. They do not do the trade for you. They do not tell you to buy stock X or Y. They do not execute the trade. They do not provide the wiring. They do not. There are like bazillions of things they don't do. They just very, very well provide you with the best intelligence. And over time, if you have these big insecure spaces, big insecure markets, whatever you want to call them, there will be great information companies. And, and it sounds a little sad to be an information company, but it's actually it's a great business and it's great. And I think likewise in your space, it's sort of the same. Be very, very good at what you do. That, that will always pay dividends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2019, you you sold the company to Insight Partners, and I'd love just to get an understanding. I mean, that was right when you were getting into that scale that I I hadn't expected, and I, by then I had moved on to other adventures myself. But I was watching you guys grow, grow, grow with Insight coming in. Um, uh, tell me about that path versus maybe continuing to an IPO or a different path. Lots of paths out there. So. Uh... It, it was not a path that sort of happened randomly. I've known Insight for a long time. Uh, Thomas Crane and Mike Triplett, the guys who are involved here, I found an email from, I think it's from 2013 or something like that. So nine years ago when he pinged me the first time, I brought that to the closing dinner, that that email. And, and, uh, so, and they stayed in touch in a fantastic way, the sort of way I'm a big sort of long time relationship guy. Just, you know, like eventually, you know, like it's, you know, eventually good things will happen. And, and so 
he stayed in touch. And then in 2017, we were thinking about raising some money. We had at that point raised 25 million only actually. And, and, uh, only, yeah, 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 yeah. And we were, we could have gotten away without raising more. We had, I remember we had like seven in the bank and we needed to raise a little bit more. And, and, but then I spoke to my friend Martin who started Spotify. He's a very clever guy. And I always listen to when Martin says something. So he was like, it's the time to go raise some money. Okay, okay, Mark. Well, I'll listen to you. Uh, so, so I called up Thomas and Mike at Insight and I said, look, I'm happy to come to New York and talk. And I said the usual. You say, I'm not racing money, but I'm trying to think about it. Blah, 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 blah. All this usual blah, blah that CEOs do. And and so you sit down with them and they're like, let's do it. And and we're not going to let you out of the building uh, before you've signed this term sheet. And I'm like, you know, it starts getting squirmed and either other party here this is not good so you know like basically weasel my out of the way out of the office get another thing going and end up with a pretty decent sort of back and forth between the two and we end up in a good spot get very good terms and they come in and they own uh some small uh, percentage and then they bought out some other shares and da 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 so then in 2019, um, there was a lot of activity around the company. You know how it's like. Sometimes it feels like every party on the planet knocks on the door. Sometimes it feels like nobody wants to talk to you on the, on the planet. <laughs> Both situations exist. Uh, this was the, the former. And uh, we ended up having multiple sort of offers if you want to do this and do that and da, da, da. And then in the midst of all of that, Insight just said, look, what about if we just partner up for another time period together and we'll we'll own the majority of the company? And through this and that, we landed there. And uh, I'm sort of, you know, very much of the belief that you know what you, the people you know versus somebody who's off the street. And so uh, we ended up doing that and sort of re, re-signed up, re-upped, whatever you want to call it, for another X time period, and we're three and a half years into that now, and it's been terrific. We were at that point probably at, I don't know, 65, 70 million of ARR, and now we are at two, 250. So it's been a crazy journey since then, and I don't know the headcount growth, but I always focus on ARR. And we built out the product, we built out the set of customers and the stuff that we do. So it's, it's been a great journey together, and love those guys, been fantastic partners. This could be a promotional video for Insight Partners. Yeah, no, it's right. I it's should right. do the disclaimer that Insight is also our largest investor and they're super investors. So uh, they can capture that little snippet and maybe use it to, for, for their sure. purposes. Um, and you guys uh, also went on an acquisition tear. You guys have an investment fund. I mean, you've really scaled the business. As I said, you guys have become a, a major player in the space and a big influencer. Yeah, no, no, it's been good. And, you know, I, for the longest time, was like, I like the very old Larry Ellison quote before he started buying companies. He had this quote where he said, I don't write checks, I write code. I'm a computer scientist by background, so I like to have our own guys write code. But then we got a couple of opportunities and, and was able to sort of get one company that helped us in the fraud space, another company in the attack surface area, and now this malware engine or malware uh, re- reversing detection and in, and it's been uh, uh, sandbox, and it's been terrific. So so you know I think we're going to calm down for a bit here and make sure that we make everything great and and uh, those sort of things. But I think we've learned what do you say trained that muscle and yeah, that's good. We just did our second acquisition at Devo, and I also promised my team we would calm down. I think they in fact demanded it's it's a lot of work and it's a lot of digestion, but um, but it's also fantastic to do. So 
but I'm going to take us to something more, more serious. I was super impressed uh, by your courage and um, voice around the war in Ukraine. So I want to take us to that topic. You, you immediately stood up uh, and in a meaningful way on, on LinkedIn and in the press saying that you uh, and Recorded Future are behind uh, Ukraine and, and would do as much as you could to help. I don't know if you can comment at all. I wanted to maybe explore two sides. Can you comment at all on what have you guys been able to do uh, that you can discuss? And then I thought maybe it'd be good just to talk about, um, you know, how much of a cyber war has that war been versus a conventional one? I thought I'd go down those two paths with you. Yeah, and we start first. So we had had the good luck to work with a little bit of the Ukrainian government before. Um, I won't comment too specifically, uh, but we've worked with one natural party for us to work with in the Ukrainian government, great guys, um, for some time. And, and so that was good. Uh, and then when the war came, you're right, uh, that morning, uh, the 24th, I guess, in the morning, it just, I was like, this is wrong. These guys cannot do this. It's just not right. And as you know, as a CEO, it's very tricky these days, you know, where do you lean in? What causes do you stand up for? You know, and Frankly, people want you to stand up for everything. And I'm not the biggest believer of, I'm sort of think individuals should do politics, not companies, frankly. That's I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. My general view as such. But in this case, doing intelligence, and every, as obviously it's become clear here, is intelligence sharing has been paramount to the ability for Ukraine to not just fight back, but to win. And we have an intelligence capability that can be helpful, not just in cyber, but also in call it more kinetic situations, war situations, as well as in disinformation. So it was pretty apparent that we could help and be meaningful in that, not just to sort of like make our virtue signaling and say that we're good, because who frankly cares about whether Record Future claims that they're good or not? Like, I sort of, that's what I probably don't love so much. This is not virtue signaling. We could help. So it came, so, so to me, we wanted to then, you know, lean in. We also have employees in Ukraine and more than a few. And and we actually, have, as you might have seen, announced recently that we're going to look for to hire a whole bunch more. So we've leaning in on that side as well. And so, yeah, if you read the official Ukrainian, uh, uh, you can dig around a little bit. You'll find the official Ukrainian communications on this. We're deployed in, in a series of, of places across the Ukrainian government in very pointy places. And we're trying to help out as much as we can, can with intelligence. Um, they have access to our platform. They can use it in various sort of ways. And, and uh, I'd like to think that we've made a bit, of, bit of a difference. Now, you know, this is not a one-man war. There are a billion things in, uh, involved here. And it's been fantastic to see the public-private. Everybody sort of for the 30 years talked about public-private collaboration. And much, much, much of it has been sort of lawyers wringing their hands sort of thing. But in this case, I think actually real work has been done, which has incurred Talk about deterring the enemy. We've been deterring the enemy here. So yeah, uh, no, that, that there have been amazing efforts. I mean, on a personal level, my wife's cousins in the Netherlands bought an ambulance, filled it with medical supplies, and drove back and forth to the border of Poland. Right? You see those kinds of efforts combined with the type of things you're doing, combined obviously with the much more structural governmental assistance. So, um, and what about the actual nature of the cyber warfare? I mean, clearly the world. I don't know if you agree with that, with what you know, that the the Russian capability on the conventional side was was much less 
strong that we at all expected. Um, do you do you see it on the cyber side? What what have you seen there? Are they first of all? Do you agree with that on the conventional side? Uh, or maybe you don't know. That's not your expertise. And then second, on the on the cyber side, do you see Russia strong punching or or not so much? Now, so a couple of different comments. I'll make sure I get them out in the right order. So first, when it comes to conventional warfare, clearly Russia has had a large uh, military apparatus, and then they've over the last, yeah, call it a decade, gone through a, what they've perceived to be a large modernization program. And But it's become apparent that a lot of the, first of all, the machinery that they acquired, whatever weaponry, uh, that they've acquired and, and try to modernize was not up to snuff. Uh, and, and Russia knows how to build weapons. There's no question. Uh, but it just didn't manage to do it in, at the scale. And then number two, they've been doing a lot in terms of sort of trainings and uh, what do you call them, sort of alarm maneuvers where you sort of call up 100,000 soldiers in the uh, Leningrad military district and, and sort of these sort of – but it turns out that it's largely been for show. So, you know, when this when, – when, and I think one of the interesting observations of all of this is that, A, the U.S. and the U.K. made the right call versus a bunch of other European countries who said that, no, Russia wouldn't invade, whereas U.S. and U.K. said they will invade, and they did. That was a sort of an interest – that put that on the Intel win side. But the, on the Intel law side is actually, I think, most Western countries would have said if they do invade – they will take Kiev. They will be successful. And that was an Intel fail. Um, you know, you saw the head of French military intelligence. He got booted over this. You know, like, so, so some real consequence, real consequence, at least a consequence happened. So there's that. Um, and, and now we're seeing this being dragged into a probably a very long time, very nasty, slow conflict. Then on the cyber side, you know, largely... Um, Cyber is sort of, when you have these sort of conflicts, is still mostly interesting in a lead-up to a conflict, especially in maybe in a maybe a little bit more low-tech conflict there, as what we're seeing between Russia and, and Ukraine. Uh, there was some pretty Im impressive stuff by the Russians just at the beginning. They've been performing an onslaught on, on Ukraine of these uh, destroyer malware type things uh, to their critical infrastructure. And we certainly perceive that they're going to keep doing this. Uh, you know, that's not going to go uh, go stop here. Now, here's where the Ukrainians have been impressive. They've been have worked with great partners. Uh, they've been whether you know they were trained by Americans and others before. They have great access to technology. But maybe more importantly, just had this sort of building this constant incident response loop that has been able to, for them to to sort of stop this stuff. So. In this conflict now going forward, it's not going to be win one in cyber. This is a conflict that's going to be won on the battlefield for sure. Uh, cyber could still have an impact on it, but this is, you know, this is First World War battle in the trenches rather than anything else, I believe. And intelligence will be very important for sure, but I don't think it's a cyber conflict per se. There are other things you can unpack in all of this. Why didn't Russia take out more communications network? Now you have this sort of win-loss sort of thing where you try to say, if I take out the communications networks of Ukraine, you know, maybe I actually, my Russian soldiers need and want to use the same communication networks because I have bad battlefield radios. So that might be a reason they didn't do that. 
maybe I perceive, again, being Russia, that actually it's better for me to let the communication systems, the email systems of Ukraine, let them be because then I can listen in on them. You know, so there is like, so there is this destroy versus uh, let something continue to exist for other reasons. So the the equations here are not as trivial as people may think. It's uh, it's sad. I, I still, for me, feels like you're watching a, a bully in the playground, you know, beat somebody up and it, you just want to make it stop and it's, you can't. No, but yeah, but, but I think we can. <laughs> to some yeah. Yeah. Healthier. Yeah. This, yeah. And this is why we're sort of all in on this, that yes. whatever. Now, you know, this is largely 99.9% of it is in the hands of the Ukrainians, but let's help them with whatever that portion is. And and uh, as taxpayers, as whatever it is we are, as as part of a democracy, we can be helpful, and let's let's be helpful. Amazing, cool. Well, I could keep uh, going down this track because I love uh, the geopolitics, but uh, I wanted to maybe end on a final topic. You've started two uh, amazing companies. Had had one of them exit. I suppose this one sort of had an exit in and of its uh, in its own way, but you're still going here. Advice for entrepreneurs. You know, uh, I, I actually know a couple of entrepreneurs that you've been instrumental in helping in the Thread Intel space. You have an investment fund, and you've you've you're really uh, gracious with your time. I know from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what what advice do you give entrepreneurs, and, uh, and and how do you how do you look at that now? Yeah, no, it's very tricky. You know, like you have to be. I think the first of all is to be careful about dishing out advice that you think is too clever, because you know, there are no sil- silver bullets in this. I end up sort of usually, if it's something B two B ish, being like, "Look, solve a very specific problem." That's what we, and we stumbled on that in my first company very successfully. It sort of was close to easy because we very but record future took a while before we found this spread intel thing there was a little bit of wondering uh you know i always say jeffrey moore's uh, crossing the chasm book the first three chapters just read it again just read it again <laughs> the, that, it's from 1995 and it's still 100 percent true so this but the, but the basic story is just pick a very narrow problem Find a set of people who have that problem. And then if there are any buddies, any partners you can find along the way who can help you solve that problem, just solve that. And you'd rather have 20 extremely happy, happy customers who are all thinking alike than a little bit of happiness over here, a little goodness over here. Just be very focused. So focus, focus, focus. That's probably what I'd like to, if there's any sort of advice, I'll give that advice. Don't care too much about what investors say. Don't care too much about, don't listen, like be, listen to customers and focus on building a great product. And if you do those, like, and it sounds tri- trivial, it sounds stupid, but it's just like, don't care about any startup scene. Don't care about like being looking good in the eyes of your neighbor. Don't care about PR. Don't care about all this stuff around you. Care about like getting those customers happy and get some money coming back from them uh, and and good things will happen. Now, you know, if you do B2C, it can be a lot of different things can be very different. So you have to be a little bit careful to extrapolate. But in what I know, that sort of seems to be a formula that has at least been true for a quarter of a century. And I believe it's probably true for the next 25 years too. Amazing. I agree. And actually, funny enough, I even think back to building up the business at, at IBM, obviously at Devo, but I think that whole notion of if you know your customers uniquely well uh, and can solve something unique, and if you actually understand the product and technology in a in a deep way, 
bringing those together is what builds a division or a company actually. So it, yeah. it is. And, and, and it's sort of like people are like, are there any shortcuts? No, there are no shortcuts. But to your, what you just said though, to know the customer well, because if you find some odd segment and that can be segmented in many different ways, as you know, by geography, by industry, some weird persona through all of this stuff, but a unique set of people uh, that, that you just find a tight enough, eventually there'll be a small enough sort of, uh, I don't know what you call it, segment, and that sounds a little bit Procter & Gamble-ish, but, but it's sort of like small enough, whatever set of people, customers, companies, and, and you just serve them well in a consistent way, goodness will happen. Come. Uh, final question. Uh, in five years, where is Christopher Alberg in five years? <laughs> I don't know. On a surf, hopefully on a surf wave somewhere, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I really, I, I think I'll still be doing some version of what I'm doing here. Um, you know, then I'll be an old man. So maybe somebody <laughs> else, is, maybe I'm, maybe I'm the chairman and somebody else is running the ship, but the, I'll, I'll be involved in a recorded future. I think it's extremely far-fetched. I will go start something else. Uh, the, I just, uh, I'm too old for that. Uh, I also think that I'm probably not very employable. So it probably means that I'm sort of stuck here one way or the other, but it's good. It's good. All right. Well, um, you and I have uh, partnered across my last two companies. So I hope five years from now we continue to partner on whatever we're doing. Exactly. Christopher, I think it's a good note for us to close out on. Thank you so much for joining me on uh, Cyber CEOs Decoded. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And thanks to our audience for listening today. And be sure to join us for the next episode of Cyber CEOs Decoded. Thank you.